Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be back in Charlotte on this warm, refreshingly humid afternoon. I guess we could call the humidity semi-liquid sunshine. Summer has turned out to be quite a bit busier than I originally anticipated. I'd mapped out a number of projects I wanted to get done this summer, and then we came up with the idea of having regional conferences. So we've had five of these so far. We've got three or four to go. But it's been very encouraging, very inspiring uh, to be able to spend time with uh, not only pastors, but uh, deacons and elders and their wives and other leaders. Uh, we've been covering subjects like uh, principles of being a shepherd. In other words, how do you shepherd a flock, whether that flock is your congregation or your family? Going over some of those principles, also talking about how to build effective teams. Uh, we talked about mistakes that leaders can make. Uh, hopefully so that we don't have to make those mistakes and learn the hard way. We've had a number of uh, videos that we've shown, Dr. Meredith's introductory remarks to the Council of Elders. We've used that as an introductory uh, video for the regional conferences. Uh, We showed this interview with Dr. Uh, Germano, plus several others. But it's been very exciting, very inspiring. Two years ago, we just invited the full-time pastors into Charlotte for some conferences. And this year, we wanted to expand the base in terms of people that we reach. So instead of sending, uh, you know, 20 or 30 pastors home excited, we're sending home uh, 40, 50, 60 other people that are just as excited. So that's part of what we're doing this summer. But it's turned out to be rather challenging. Uh, But it has been exciting and very encouraging. What I'd like to do in the sermon today is address a number of questions and issues that are on the minds of people today as a result of uh, planning to start Living University. As uh, we heard in the announcements uh, over the years, a number of people have had questions and concerns They've read things Mr. Armstrong has said, and then they've heard other things. And so I wanted to address some of these things, some of the questions. Why is a living church of God starting a living university today? Why are we doing that? Why are we developing an educational arm of the work when some people have assumed and are telling other people the work is over? Why are we starting a living university today? Now, ever since we made the announcement of our intent to start a living university, a lot of critics have gone into high gear. They've got something they can jump up and down about, making pronouncements and so on. One of the problems is many of the critics are misinformed or poorly informed about what is happening and what has actually transpired over the years. Some are asking, how can you have a university when you only have three or four professors? And how can you have a university when you don't have a campus? Well, they don't understand the power of the Internet. They don't understand what can be done today with today's technology. They also don't understand the trends in higher education today, that many colleges are changing their names to universities, as Dr. Germano explained in the video that we just saw. You know, in America... Uh, colleges are referred to basically as colleges, uh, small universities. But outside the U.S., when you tell people you graduated from a college, they think you graduated from a high school. Uh, This is true in the U.K., it's true in other places. So changing the name from a college to a university is partly due to uh, basically dealing with international students and the trends associated with that. 
Others are making claims that uh, Living Living Church of God's intention to have an accredited university is a major doctrinal error that Mr. Armstrong would have never agreed to and that uh, he said in different times, you know, we don't need worldly accreditation. And yet these critics don't understand Mr. Armstrong. They don't understand where he was coming from, how he approached various things. They also don't understand what went on behind the scenes in Pasadena over the years. And Dr. Germano addressed some of those things in the video. Some of the critics also do not realize that Dr. Meredith and also Dr. Germano were there when all of these controversies happened. And they've got an inside understanding that most of the critics do not have because they were not there. And this is an important dimension we need to understand today. They also don't understand the facts of history, and they don't understand the scriptures, which we're going to go through today. I've also read where some are surprised that Dr. Meredith, of all people, would be seeking to establish a legitimate university. They don't understand his sense of vision. They don't understand a number of things. They also do not understand the accreditation process. You know, being accredited in academics is no different than having an auditor come by and look over our books to say that you're doing everything upright and honestly. And Mr. Armstrong had uh, a major uh, accounting firm come by and, and basically go through the books of the college and the, and the university, excuse me, the, the church, uh, year after year after year so that he could say, we're doing things honestly, we're doing things above board. And academic accreditation is really no difference. It's kind of like giving a good housekeeping stamp of approval to the operation of an educational institution. So what I'd like to do today in the sermon is really to kind of step back just a little bit and not just deal with the issue of accreditation, not just deal with the issue of living university. What I'd like to look at is the role of education in God's plan. The role of education in God's plan down through history. I think if we can understand from a historical perspective how God has worked with people, down through the centuries, we're going to have an understanding of why we are starting a living university today. We're going to use the scriptures for these things. Maybe just a little bit of background. Over the years, I have noticed, because I came into the church some 40 years ago, I was in a graduate program at that time working on a doctor's degree at a medical center. And uh, that was taboo. Almost. You're at Satan's world in a Satan's university studying evil things like medicine. Well, I was advised by a number of church members, you need to get out of that evil background. And I was concerned. So I got on a bus, went to Pasadena, talked with uh, Mr. Meredith at that time, also talked with Dr. Hay, and they didn't tell me to quit. They said, you need to stay in your program. You need to finish. You need to get a degree. It's going to be useful down the road for accreditation and for other purposes. What I've noticed over the years is that the Church of God has had kind of a love-hate relationship with higher education, especially worldly education. Uh, it's interesting how Mr. Armstrong founded three colleges, three institutions of higher education. 
And he used the title of being the Chancellor of Ambassador Colleges. And he used it proudly. It was an accomplishment. He also mentioned from time to time how we had students and faculty that came to Ambassador College from uh, prominent institutions in the world. And he didn't hide that fact. He said they came to Ambassador College, as I mentioned in my interview with Dr. Germano. I came to Ambassador College to learn what I didn't learn, to see a missing dimension in education, to come to understand that. So we were doing things in a very positive way. But there was also the kind of this undercurrent. Well, if you've had worldly education, then that's, that's waste of time. That's no good. But, you know, almost all the opportunities I've had serving in the Church of God have come in many ways because of the educational background that I had before I came to Ambassador College. And we'll see that this is not... Uh, something unusual in the way that God has worked with people down through history. But I just wanted to cover some of these things because I think we need to look at some of the skeletons in our closet from time to time and recognize what is there and understand perhaps why it is there. You know, our concern with higher education in the world is not unique to the church of God. Uh, if you've had any experience with other Bible-based religious groups, many of them have concerns about worldly education because of the secular drift of uh, uh, worldly educational institutions, because of their anti-God, anti-Bible approaches. But that doesn't mean that the skills that you'll develop there and some of the knowledge that you'll be exposed to is all bad. So as we launch the Living University I think it's appropriate that we really talk about some of these issues. But what I'd like to do in the sermon is focus on the role of education, how God has used education down through history in preparing people to serve in the church and to lead his people. What I'd like to do is look at some examples from the Old Testament as well as examples from the New Testament uh, and also talk about then what we're doing today and what has been done in history. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, just to notice how God began working with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And again, we have to read between the lines in some of these scriptures, but the principles are here. God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the Garden of Eden. As we begin reading in... Verse 15 of chapter 2. So God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. So he was given a job. Now, if Adam was created as an adult and he's given a job, hasn't grown up watching people do it, he would have to have been instructed. Adam, this is a shovel. Adam, this is a rake. <laughs> Adam, this is how, what you do with those things. You, know, you do this with your children. You have to explain to them how things are done. So God, Adam was given a job, so then that would entail having some instruction. That instruction would have come from God the Father. It also mentions in verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. Now he would have had to explain what a tree was and what the different kinds of fruit were. So there's instruction involved here. Of every tree you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall surely die. 
So Adam was given a choice. Now, to make wise choices, you've got to be informed. If you make the wrong choice, this is what's going to happen. If you make the right choice, this is what's going to happen. So by the very fact that God gave Adam and Eve choices to make, it implies there was instruction and teaching there so they could make wise choices. You know, if you were given a choice to make and nobody instructed you about how to make it, how to approach it, uh, how to go through the situation, you'd probably make all kind of crazy choices. Well, nobody told me. But God did tell people. He told Adam and Eve. He gave them a choice, gave them a job. Mentions later, a couple of verses, uh, verses 19 and 20, out of the ground the Lord made uh, every beast, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now, did Adam just pull names out of the air? Well, I'm going to call this one a giraffe. I'm going to call this one something else. And he probably asked God, well, what, what, why did you create that thing with that long neck? Why, why does it have a long neck? Well, because it's going to trim the trees. It's got a long neck. Why did you create these other things that crawl along the ground? God probably explained to Adam what they were doing, what their job was, because his job was to dress it and keep it, take care of these things. In one sense, if you look at this verse, a couple of verses here, Adam was doing an environmental inventory, finding out what was in the garden, asking God why it was there. He was supposed to manage it then, so he'd have to know why it was created, what it was supposed to do. Again, we're reading between the lines. But the implication, being given a job and to make choices, God would have had to teach them and tell them and explain to them a number of things. The point I'm making is God obviously educated Adam and Eve. He gave them instructions, gave them teachings so that they could do the job that they were supposed to be doing. In Genesis 3, verse 8 to 10, Adam and Eve made some wrong choices. Then they discovered they were naked and they hid in the bushes. In verse 8 it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. And the Lord called to Adam and said, where are you? He said, well, I heard your voice. Now, was God just taking an evening stroll? Or was he walking, or was this part of his habit, to walk and talk with Adam and Eve in the evening? How was your day? What did you learn today? Here's what you're going to be doing tomorrow. There was probably dialogue between God and Adam and Eve. And that was probably an instructive dialogue. If you've had children and you work with them growing up, you'll walk and talk with them and you'll coach them and advise them. And if uh, you young people will take advantage of talking with your parents, Mom, Dad, do you have any advice in this situation? Oh, thank you for asking. Thought you never would. (laughs) You know, we can learn and grow as a result of these instructive dialogues. But God is in the educational business. He educated Adam and Eve. And we'll see that he did that down through history. In Genesis 12, when God began working with Abraham or Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, just to notice something. In Genesis 12, verse 4, it says, Adam departed as he was instructed, basically, by God. And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years of age. God began working with Abraham, or Abram, when he was 75 years of age. 
And you can go then to Genesis 25, verse 7. It says, when he died, he was 175 years old. So God worked with Abraham and with Sarah for 100 years. An awful lot of time to educate and to teach and to coach and to guide. Abraham became the, became the father of, of the faithful. But he was instructed by God. He learned from making some bad decisions. He learned whenever he exercised faith in an appropriate way. He was educated for a hundred years. And that's how he became the father of the faithful. God just didn't pull somebody, well, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing you. and You're going to become the father of the faithful. How? Well, by magic. Wave a magic wand. All of a sudden, you're the father of the faithful. No, he spent a hundred years working with Abraham, teaching, training, educating, coaching. God is in the educational business. Abraham and Sarah both learned as a result of making decisions, making choices, just like God gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to make a choice. Notice next with uh, Moses in Exodus chapter 2. Again, we're skipping over things, but I just wanted to pull out some Some very obvious examples. Israelites had gone to Egypt. Things had changed. They'd become slaves in Egypt. God planned to deliver them from Egypt. And he just didn't come down and start uh, uh, doing things all of a sudden. He began working with a a fellow, with a little boy, by the name of Moses, latter part of chapter 2. It says, the Pharaoh's daughter found this little baby floating in a basket. In verse 9, it says, Pharaoh's daughter said to uh, the child's sister, you go find your mother, find the child's mother, take this child away and nurse it for me and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter And he became her son, so she called him his name Moses, saying, because they drew him out of the water. Moses was then raised in the house of Pharaoh. Egypt was the leading nation on the face of the earth at that time. Moses, the individual who God was preparing to lead the Israelites out of slavery and out of Egypt, received an education in the house of Pharaoh. He was raised as a prince. He was raised as a prince. He would have been educated in Acts Acts chapter 7, verse 22. It mentions that Moses was learned in all of the knowledge of the Egyptians. (gasps) Worldly education. But God worked it out that way. Moses got the best education in a worldly sense that was available on the face of the earth at that time. History suggests that Moses was also a general in the Egyptian army. He would have learned about logistics, how to move large numbers of people and materials, because that's what armies do. That's what generals do. I was reading a a biography, I think it was, about uh, Dwight Eisenhower. He graduated from West Point between World War I and World War II. He was stationed in Panama. Uh, where there was really not much going on. And most of the guys that he was there with spent their afternoons uh, sleeping, uh, playing games, uh, drinking, doing whatever. He had a commanding officer 
in Panama that recognized Eisenhower's ability. So this guy's got potential. And he began coaching him. And Eisenhower made a war room, I think, on his porch uh, on the side of the house. Got maps, studied the movements of people, took extra training, uh, studied about logistics. How do you move large numbers of people? How do you supply an army and do things like that? He went through some additional training, and when World War II started, Eisenhower was ready. He'd been prepared for what was coming. And it appears God was preparing Moses. If he was a general in Egypt, he would have received army training in how to move troops around, how to supply those troops, how to keep them from running out of materials. What he didn't know, God was going to provide manna for the Israelites as they went through the desert. God had some things he hadn't told Moses. But the point I'm making is Moses was learned in all of the knowledge of the Egyptians. When you read through Leviticus, you find Moses recording principles of public health that were way ahead of his time. He talks about washing in running water, not stagnant water. (laughs) Running water has oxygen in it, and it kills germs. Uh, It talks about the the quarantine principle. Somebody comes down sick, keep them outside the camp. Uh, When you go to the bathroom, you dig a hole, you bury it. You don't leave it laying around so flies get on it, crawl all over it, and then come in, land on your food. Or as you see in the pictures of many of these developing countries, flies crawling all over the faces of children. When we were in Jordan, we saw flies all over the place. You ate your lunch with one hand to keep the flies. No, you kept the flies away with this hand. I'm right-handed and ate with the other hand. Because otherwise, the flies that had been crawling over some manure just outside the building would come in and land on the food. But Moses said, look, if somebody's sick, you quarantine them. If uh, you go to the bathroom, you bury it. You don't have manure laying around all over the place, especially close to houses. What is missing in the Bible are a list of drugs and and potions that were used to uh, treat diseases. But when you study Egyptian medicine, uh, Aztec medicine, Mayan medicine, all around the world, you find lists of drugs. These are not found in the Bible. The Bible takes a different approach. That doesn't mean you can't use some of these things. But the biblical approach is on prevention, learning how to live, how to prevent problems and avoid problems. And Moses was way ahead of his time writing about those things. He was talking about don't eat a lot of fat. It took us until about the 1970s or 1980s to realize that high-fat diets are related to colon cancer, heart disease, and other things. But Moses was talking about that uh, about 3,000 years ago. God used a person that was prepared and educated to uh, write the first five books of the Bible. But the point I want to make is he received the bulk of his education in Egypt. Then he went into the wilderness and he functioned as a shepherd for a number of years and God began working with him there providing the missing dimension that he didn't have with worldly education. But Moses was a very highly educated individual. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, this was the instruction that Moses provided to the Israelites just before they came into the promised land. They had wandered for 40 years. They had made some bad decisions. And the consequence was they had to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness till that 
generation that made some bad decisions died out, and then they were allowed to enter the promised land. But notice the instruction that Moses provides, actually, that God provided to Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1, again, notice the thrust of the scripture. Moses is writing to the Israelites. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe. Moses was functioning as a teacher. And if we project ahead into the coming kingdom of God, we're going to be doing pretty much the same thing, teaching the laws of God to the peoples of this world as teachers and educators. Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which your Lord your God gives you. Don't add to it. Don't take away. He wanted the Israelites to stand out as an example to the world. But down in verse 9, he says, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Teach them these things, these statutes, these laws, to your children and to your grandchildren. Moses was basically laying the responsibility on parents to teach their children. That doesn't mean they can't go to school, but it means parents really need to take uh, uh, real concerns to make sure their children are learning. I was talking with Mr. Weston, I think, uh, and some others about the kids that come up to summer camp. And he said when they have a Bible quiz up there that the kids that are homeschooled often do much better than the kids that are in public schools. Uh, with their Bible knowledge. I think part of that is sometimes as parents, we well, they're going to school, they're, they're learning in school. Whereas the, the uh, parents that are homeschooling, their kids are not going to learn anything unless the parents teach them. So they're making sure that their kids know the Bible. So we need to be focused in the same direction. Teach these things to your children and to your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord and you saw these miracles. Uh, that they may fear, learn to fear me all the days of their life on earth, that they may teach their children. So we, you know, as, as adults, part of our challenge is to pass on to our children a knowledge of the truth. And as an older generation in the church of God, part of our mission is to pass on to the next generation a knowledge of the truth. Because that truth can be lost in one generation if it's not passed on. I mean, that's how fragile the truth is. It can be lost in one generation. So part of our mission, even looking at the Old Testament as parents, is to pass on to the next generation a knowledge of the truth. And that's really what Living University is all about. That's what ambassador colleges were all about, was passing on the truth to another generation. Let's look next at Samuel. Go to 1 Samuel. Samuel was called by God. God began working with him as a child. His mother was unable to have children. She prayed. Uh, God gave her the opportunity to be a, a mother. And then she dedicated that child to God, which is a very unselfish approach. God began working with Samuel. He was taught and trained by Eli, the high priest. For a number of years. But if we go to uh, 1 Samuel 19, verse 20, 
it appears from Scripture that Samuel founded or started uh, the order of prophets, that he was involved in that. And again, we're not told a whole lot of details in Scripture. But in, in 1 Samuel 19, verse 20, <clears throat> Let me get in the right book, and then we'll be on the same page. First Samuel 19, verse 20, it says, Saul sent messengers to take David, and they saw a group of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as a leader over them. So here we read about Samuel leading a group of prophets. I'll just give you these other scriptures in us. Second Kings chapter two verses three and five, and Second Kings four verse thirty-eight. It appears there were schools of prophets for what were called the sons of the prophets at Ramah. This is a little bit north of uh, Jerusalem, in Bethel, in Jericho, and at Gilgal. And when you read some of the different sources about these verses, it says the priesthood was degenerate. Uh, during the times of uh, Samuel. Of course, you read about uh, Eli's sons. Uh, The various kings strayed off the path. And it appears that Samuel initiated these schools as kind of a moral check on both the kings and the priests. And it was the prophets that stood up and said, you shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) You know, you disobey God, you're going to go into captivity. Uh, They had a big job, and it was a very thankless job. Some were thrown in, in prison. Some were were killed as martyrs because they were telling the leaders of the nation, you're off track. There's going to be consequences. You know, Isaiah, I think it is 58 verse 1, it says, Cry aloud, spare not, show my people their sins. And that's part of our job today is to explain, especially to the nations of Israel, why they have been blessed and the consequences we are going to experience as a nation because we have forgotten the laws of God. We've turned our back on God. We think we can change this and change that, and that God will understand that he's just so loving and so merciful that we can do pretty much whatever we want as long as we use God's name there. And part of our job is to explain, no, we can't do that. And we need to explain it to the peoples who have been blessed and explain to them why they've been blessed and the source of those blessings. And the ancient prophets had to do the same thing. A book in our library at uh, uh, the office entitled The Encyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical uh, Literature says young men were educated under a teacher in a school or learning colleges. These students were called sons of the prophets. They were educated in a proper knowledge of religion. In other words, educated in the truth, what the Bible actually says. And then they became preachers who explained that truth on the Sabbath and on the holy days. If you go to Ezra chapter 7, Ezra was a scribe working with the Israelites, primarily Jews that came back from the Babylonian captivity. Uh, His job was to keep those people on track, point them in the right direction. But notice how he prepared for that role. He just didn't walk into it and expect God to do everything for him. 
in Ezra chapter 7, verse, start in verse 6. It says, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. So Ezra was knowledgeable in the laws of God, but before he came back to Jerusalem in verse 10, it says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of God, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So before Ezra came back to work with the people that had come back from captivity, he prepared for that. He studied. He reviewed so that he would be able to do that. If you jump ahead to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, it shows how they functioned, how the religious leaders functioned when they came back from captivity. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in an open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation and men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So this is the Feast of Trumpets. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. It wasn't a 15-minute sermonette. (laughs) It was instruction all morning. And those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So as the scribes stood on a platform of wood, just like I'm standing on up here today, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood uh, some other people. I'm not going to wrestle through all these names. I think I'll take the uh, Rod McNair approach here and utilize the time by not wading through all these things you can read for yourself. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up, showing respect for what he was doing. Down in verse 8, it says, So they read distinctly from the book of the law of God, and they gave the sense, or they gave the meaning, and helped them understand the reading. So here was an example of how the religious teachers in Ancient Israel dealt with the people. They were knowledgeable of the scriptures. They stood up and read and explained the scriptures. And this is basically what we're doing today. It's interesting that Samuel apparently established or founded these religious schools. Mr. Armstrong referred to that a number of times in uh, part of his rationale for starting Ambassador College. Well, Samuel had colleges where he trained people to lead, in a religious sense, the people of Israel. And a number of other sources point that out. You go to Halley's Handbook of the Bible, he talks about these schools of Samuel. Uh, Other books talk about the same thing. And it appears these young men were basically in their late 20s, say 25 to 30. They spent uh, considerable time learning the scriptures so that they could explain the scriptures. Uh, And we'll see that this is something that has transpired down through history following this example. In Daniel chapter 1, another interesting example of a person that God used powerfully. He was carried off to uh, Babylon as a captive, as a young man. 
And we're told in verse 2, 3, and 4, actually start in verse 3. It says, The king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men in whom there was no blemish, very sharp-looking, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom. In other words, they were sharp young men. They were intelligent, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace. So he chose to work with a group of young men from the captives whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. This is worldly education. But they were taught the language of the people that they were going to live amongst, taught about their culture, so they would be able to effectively understand these people. And the king appointed them then, you know, a meal and so on they didn't eat. But the point is that Daniel was given a worldly education, then God began working with him later and opened his understanding. Notice in uh, Daniel chapter... Nine. The Daniel was also studying the scriptures that he had available to him at that time, in addition to being taught the knowledge of the Chaldeans. Chapter nine, verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hazarius, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I Daniel understood by books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet. So he was studying the scriptures. He understood that after 70 years that they would be restored back to Israel or to Jerusalem. So he was studying the scriptures. He wasn't just sitting there twiddling his thumbs and maybe praying once in a while. He was actively involved in studying the scriptures. He was a highly educated individual. What we find through the Old Testament, I think it's interesting and instructive, that God prepared Moses in Egypt to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and he used a man who was educated and learned in all of the knowledge of Egypt. Now, the Egyptians were pagan. They had a bunch of problems, but God used that background. If he was a general in the army, he was also trained in moving people, and that was all before God began to work with him. Daniel was educated in Babylon of all places. (laughs) But he was educated there. And God added more to that education and used him in a very powerful way. We see Samuel starting a school for the prophets, training young men that would then be able to explain the scriptures to other people, that the educational process has been an important part of God's plan from the very beginning. Let's jump to the New Testament. <clears throat> Again, we're dealing with a split sermon here, so we're dealing with a time limit. But in the New Testament, in Matthew 22, verse 29, you don't need to turn there, but just to be aware of, you know, Jesus had an understanding of the Scriptures that confounded the religious leaders of his day. He was talking in Matthew 22. He said, you know, you don't understand the Scriptures. They're talking about the resurrection, what things were going to be like in the future, and who would be married to who. He says, you're leaders in Israel, and you, you don't understand the Scriptures. Jesus did. How did he get that understanding? In Luke chapter 2, let's turn there. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. 
where Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover with his parents. Jesus was 12 years old, we're told. He stayed behind in the temple talking with the religious leaders when his parents left, and they must have trusted him because they assumed that he was probably with other members of the family. So apparently he was mature enough at age 12 to be trusted by his parents. I don't think he was just out running around doing his own thing. Where is Jesus? we got to go. We'll just leave him. That wasn't the story. <laughs> but in uh, verse 46, it says, So now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple. They went back looking for him, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening and asking them questions, a 12-year-old boy asking questions of the religious leaders of that time. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. At 12 years of age, Jesus understood the scriptures, and the implication is somebody taught him those scriptures that he spent time studying those scriptures. You have the example of the apostles. Uh, They were trained for about three and a half years by Jesus Christ, then sent out in a group of 12 in Luke 9, verses 1 to 2. Jesus sent out 12. Then in Luke 10, verse 1, it says he sent out 70 others. So Jesus apparently was busy training people. Training a group of 12 as the apostles, then sending out 70 more. He was a very busy person training people to establish the early New Testament church. In Acts chapter 4, some comments are made here that we've got to be careful we don't take out of context. We need to consider them in, in in the overall context of other scriptures and other people that are talked about. One of the criticisms of the apostles is mentioned here, Acts 4, verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, in other words, they were not trained as rabbinical scholars, but they had been trained by Jesus Christ for three and a half years. Uh, So they were not uneducated in the sense of being just uh, uneducated clods. They had been trained by Jesus Christ. But they were uneducated according to the rabbinical tradition. They marveled and they realized that they, the apostles, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. So they'd been trained by Jesus Christ. If you look at Paul as an example, uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul gives a little bit of insight into his background. Paul was a very highly educated individual, got most of his education prior to his conversion through worldly sources. Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, it says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Other scriptures indicate that he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, probably the leading theologian, in Jerusalem at that time, and he probably spent a number of years being trained by Gamaliel. So he was highly educated. Paul came from Tarsus, which was the seat of a major university in the ancient world. So he came from a university city. 
Uh, Paul was able to quote Greek poets. And in Acts 17, he talked to the, the leaders in Athens and he used various phrases that the educated people of that time would have understood. So again, God was using a person who received a worldly education, then God began to work with him. In Galatians here, it mentions that uh, uh, in verse 12, he says, I neither receive, let's start in verse 11. So, but I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It mentions that uh, after he was converted, it says in verse 17, I did not go up to Jerusalem at that time to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia. And the implication, he was taught by Jesus Christ in Arabia for about three years, then came up to Jerusalem, the next verse, verse 18. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for a couple of weeks to make sure that what he was teaching was incorrect. And then he went to other places. But here's a case where Paul was called by God. He had been educated in the world. Uh, God then added a missing dimension to that education, and Paul was used powerfully to write 14 books in the New Testament. He spoke about three different languages, at least that's what we understand from Scripture. You know, I have struggled to teach or to, to speak an extra second language, one or two. I had some Spanish in high school, some German in college, and I struggled with French, but I was not born with a French tongue. So I, it just not worked that well. But Paul was. He had a gift of language. Some people have a gift that way, and others uh, don't. An interesting example in Revelation, in Acts 17, verse 6, it talks about the apostles turned the world upside down with their teaching. In other words, they, they were teaching things that was contrary to what the world understood at that time. They were persecuted as a result. But they were used very powerfully. And they used the training that they were given very powerfully to literally turn the world upside down. And I think we may have the opportunity to do the same thing one of these days, you know, explaining to the world that Peter was not the first pope and to show from history that there's no evidence that Peter was the first pope. The evidence is contrary to that. Uh, the evidence that uh, the early church did not baptize children I was reading uh, one of the books preparing for the sermon today. And uh, it's interesting some of the scriptures that some of these books will use to prove that the early church baptized children. Uh, If you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is talking about marriage. It's not talking about baptism in this particular chapter. But this is supposedly one of the proof scriptures that one book tried to use to show that the early church baptized children. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about uh, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now are they holy? I'm not talking about baptism. We're just talking about if you have one of your parents that's converted, you are sanctified, you're set apart, you're special, because you're being exposed to the truth when other people are not being exposed to the truth. It's not talking about baptism. But understanding how to apply these scriptures is important in understanding the plan and the purpose of God. 
Let's go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. You have the account here of uh, the eras that the church would go through down through history. Dr. Germano made a very interesting point in one of our discussions. He said, this is not the history of mainstream Christianity in these two chapters. He said, this is the history of the church of God, and it only fits the church of God. This doesn't explain church history when you look at it from the standpoint of Catholics and Protestants. You know, the Seventh-day Adventists, for example, feel that the uh, Philadelphia era of the church was the Reformation whenever the truth was being restored. And they believe that they are Laodiceans, which they're probably correct. (laughs) But this is how different churches view these eras. Some view them quite differently than we do, even though they recognize Revelation 2 and 3 are talking about eras of the church. Uh, But in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, it talks about the angel of Thyatira. And this appears to be applying to an era roughly about 1,000 A.D. to about 1,500 A.D., very roughly. We have felt that uh, over the years that the Waldensians, uh, people that uh, were active in southern France, northern Italy, appear to fall in this particular era. And it's interesting when you study the Waldensians as an example And it appears that God's church was among these people, but not all of them were probably in the true church. Uh, When you study their beliefs, they taught against idols, uh, against indulgences, against uh, confessions, against purgatory, against prayers for the dead, against crosses, against relics. Uh, And you would go through these old churches, cathedrals in Europe, and they're all filled with all these things, idols and relics and everything else. They believed that the church in Rome was the harlot of Revelation. They were teaching these things. Of course, they were persecuted for this. But what's interesting is these Waldensians seem to uh, retreat up into the valleys of the Piedmont. These are, uh, you might say, the foothills of the Alps. And just across the Alps into France, you had Albigensians, uh, Cathars, people like that, that uh, appear to have some very, very similar beliefs. But what's interesting is these Waldensians retreated up into these valleys that were very difficult to get into. And they established a college up there. A couple of years ago, I was there with uh, Ray and Rhonda Clore, uh, and uh, we actually saw the buildings that uh, were at least in the same area as this college. A little sign there says college up these stairs. Uh, they were training ministers there. They would spend their winter months when they got snowed in studying the Bible. And then they were sent out two by two, an older gentleman with a younger gentleman. Uh, Many of them didn't get married, not because the church taught against or taught celibacy, but basically because it was so dangerous. And they had a lot of ground to cover. They memorized the scriptures. So if they were caught, uh, they wouldn't be carrying a Bible. But they, they knew it up here. And they would get in arguments with Catholic priests and literally tie the priests in knots because they they were well-schooled in understanding the scriptures. But they had a college where they were training their ministers. And then these ministers went out from that area up into Germany, up into England, up into France, through the Balkans, and they had quite an impact in that area. But they were trained in the scriptures. They spent several years preparing for that. 
the college was located in a little town or a little village called Pra del Torno or Pra del Tor. It's way up in the hills, way up at the end of a valley, and just some stone cottages up there. And the one room where they had a table <laughs> made out of a big slab of stone would only hold about six or eight people around it. That was the classroom. And some people have laughed at us. How can you have a university if you don't have a bunch of classrooms? Waldensians did, and they trained people that had an impact all over Europe. And this was the result of their educational program. They translated the Bible into French and possibly German, into the common languages. They were teaching people about the Bible when the Catholic Church was telling people, don't read the Bible, don't study the Bible, uh, and they were being persecuted for that. Now, they were explaining the truth of God in many cases. You can go visit those valleys today in a little town called Torapalici. Uh, it's right along a stream, and they have a Waldensian church there, a Waldensian library there, a Waldensian school. But they are linked with the Methodist church in Italy today. There's a Waldensian church up in Valdez, 40, 50 miles north of here. It's a Waldensian Presbyterian church. You know, they're not part of uh, the Philadelphia era today, but it appears that the church was among those people. Jumping up to modern history, Mr. Armstrong founded three colleges, Ambassador College in Pasadena, Bricketwood, England, and Big Sandy, Texas. Why did he establish the colleges? To provide a trained ministry for the church so the church could grow. And we had basically a three- to four-year training period to study the Bible, study the scriptures, study principles of Christian living, and then send those people out as workers within the church, uh, within the work there in Pasadena and other places around the world. It's interesting, Harvard University was established uh, in the United States for the purpose of training ministers in the very beginning. Now, it's not doing that today. You know, Harvard School of Theology is very liberal today. But it was established first uh, of all to establish and to basically provide a trained ministry. It was interesting how many uh, people were college-educated that were on the Mayflower that came over, that they were trained at Cambridge University at one of the colleges there. It was a Puritan college. But there was something like 20 or 30 people on the Mayflower who were college graduates It was pointed out to me a number of years ago that uh, New England, at the time this nation was founded, had one of the highest concentration of college-educated people in the world. And this is where the church came to, in Newport, Rhode Island, at that time. It's interesting, the history of our own nation. Mr. Armstrong established the colleges for the purpose of training a ministry. The Living Church of God is starting a university for the very same reason, to develop and promote an education and understanding of the Bible so that we can train people to serve in the church in various capacities. Some people have jumped on this idea it's going to be a co-educational institution to train workers for the church and say, well, they're going to have women ministers. No, (laughs) that is a totally wrong read of what we're even stating in the catalog. But people like to jump up and down and make pronouncements and make wild you know, statements. 
you know, if we're going to fulfill our mission as a church, Matthew 24:14 says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for witness. We're going to have to have people who understand what the gospel really is. And some people have gotten confused over that in recent years. But we've got to explain what the gospel really is. If we're going to feed the flock that responds to our preaching, we're going to have people that are trained and able to explain the scriptures. And this is not just preachers. If somebody sits down with you as, as, as a woman over coffee and they ask you about your beliefs, can you explain those beliefs logically and clearly from the scriptures? If we are going to fulfill our mission of crying aloud and sparing not and showing this nation what we're doing wrong, we're going to have to understand the prophecies. We're going to have to have people that understand the prophetic scriptures and can explain them properly. You know, we're seeing the Bible under attack today. Part of our classes are going to be designed to show people how to defend the scriptures and how to explain that the Bible is totally different from other quote-unquote religious texts. We need to be able to explain those things. You know, in Malachi, the prophecies talk about uh, Malachi 3, verse 1, talk about John the Baptist and then the application of that beyond John the Baptist. It says, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way for the return of Jesus Christ, to point people back to the Scriptures and explain to them the prophecies of the coming kingdom of God. Matthew 17:11 talks about one of the missions of John the Baptist was to restore all things or to recapture true values, to get back on track, to show people how to live. This is part of our mission today. You know, in Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21, talking about the coming kingdom of God, it talks about people will see their teachers, and their teachers will say, this is the way. Walk you in it. You can't explain that if you don't know it. And it's going to be hard to convince people to do it if you've never done it. You know, education has got to be part of our process as we prepare for the coming kingdom of God, pointing people back to the scriptures. Proverbs 1, 7, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning, the starting point of knowledge. What biblical principles are in the Bible for entertainment? What biblical principles are in the Bible for agriculture? for economics, for education, for science, for nutrition, for health. We've got to get back to the book, back to the basics. And this is going to be one of the exciting things of developing classes based on the Bible. I remember telling uh, one individual that uh, asked me to come to Big Sandy to teach at the college down there in the 90s. I said, we could develop a health education program based on the Bible. And then I found out they didn't want to use the biblical principles. <laughs> they didn't want to use them. They wanted to get away from them. And as a result, the college wound up, wound up closing. What I wanted to do in the sermon today is merely go through and look at from the standpoint of history and its standpoint of the scriptures, how God has used education down through the ages, working with Moses, working with Samuel, working with Daniel, working with Paul, and working with the early church and how that has been used uh, by God's people down through the ages. We're starting Living University today basically to equip more laborers. 
to prepare people to serve more effectively those that are called into the church today, but also to prepare the way for the return of Jesus Christ. When we're going to become teachers and educators that are going to probably fan out all over the world, filling this world with a knowledge of the truth, as we read about in Isaiah 11. You know, we're hoping to build a university that is really going to reach the whole way around the world. Instead of bringing people into a place where you've got to go through immigration processes and passports and you know, visas and all that stuff, you turn on your computer, you press a button, and there's the class material. And people can stay in their homes in South Africa, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, wherever and have Dr. Meredith explaining the scriptures to them and learning about God's way of life. So I would encourage you, instead of listening to the critics that are jumping up and down, why are they starting a university when the work is over? Well, the work is not over. (laughs) There's a door that is open to us today that the apostles did not have. You know, the Internet goes the whole way around the world, into China, into the Middle East, into all of these places. Don't listen to the critics. Let's be thankful. Let's be thankful and appreciative and excited about the opportunity that God is opening up to his church today to start a university that has the capacity of reaching everyone on the face of this earth. It's exciting.